This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Mixed martial arts enthusiasts, welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and we've got a lot to talk about in the world of mixed martial arts. So why don't we dive right in as the UFC has successfully executed their first show in Paris, the French Mixed Martial Arts Commission overseeing the first ever UFC event in Paris and in the country of France. Not without a couple of hiccups, so we can talk about those along the way, but generally the crowd was really, really receptive. I think that the UFC will probably visit France every single year going forward, whether it's for a fight night uh, or maybe eventually a pay-per-view in Paris. I, that wouldn't surprise me. You've got a lot of French fighters on the come-up, many of whom we'll talk about as they went 6-0 and on the show. If you would have uh, parlayed all of them, it would have been like 8-1. to I think most of them, all of them except for Ferez Zayam were favorites. And Ferez Zayam was only like a, a small underdog. So why don't we start from the main event. Cyril Gan defeats Tai Tuivasa. Third round, four minutes and 23 seconds in. Man, that uh, that hurt my TSN Edge recommended play of Gan winning in the fourth or fifth round. And uh, that almost got there. Almost got there. But Cyril Gan looking phenomenal you know what what are it's fights like this and fights like the co-main event that really remind you how good some fighters are after a bad night at the office it's not the Whitaker had a bad night at the office against Israel in their rematch but Cyril gone against Francis Ngannou sort of a bad night at the office for him but really turned it around here but also we've got to give some credit to Tai Tuivasa because this was a terrible stylistic matchup for Taito Ivasa. Terrible. Basically had to take risks for the entire fight if he wanted to win this fight. Because I don't think that there was any shot of him winning a decision here. Based on the range that Cyril Gan is able to control. You know, it, just with complete mastery. And that's what makes Cyril Gan such an incredible force in the UFC. And one of the best heavyweights on the planet today. He's so good with his range. He's so good with his defense. He's just, he, he barely puts himself into trouble. But as you're watching it, you're seeing Tuivasa crowd him. And if you look at the stats, I'll pull them up right now, for that main event. 110 significant strikes to 29 for Cyril Gan. But what Tai Tuivasa did, and it, I, much to his credit, because I thought it was a brilliant game plan, was... He was economical with his strikes. Five-round fight. You got to be against a guy like Gunn. But he also just controlled where Cyril Gunn was going to go, if that makes sense. He, he moved Cyril Gunn into places that would put him in danger. Just by being an imposing force and, and Gunn having to respect his power enabled him to kind of get Gunn up against the cage, cut, cut him off, pretty much, and then put him in situations where he was not in his comfort zone. And that's really the only way I think that people can beat Cyril Gunn. You look at how Francis Ngannou did it with takedowns and things of that nature. Tuivasa was able to get Gunn up against the cage, keep him you know, away from being in the center of the octagon where he was going to have a, a clear advantage over Tai Tuivasa because of that range. Was able to get him into kind of suffocating spots in the, in the cage, in order to try to capitalize in a similar way that he did Derek Lewis, where he kind of trapped him 
and Tuivasa is great at setting traps. Very high fight IQ for a guy who, when you hear him on the mic, he's, you know, sounds like a party animal, you know, talks about how he enjoys life and drinks beer out of a shoe. You know, all of these different things that would lead you to believe that Tai Tuivasa is kind of a jokester. That doesn't mean he's not a highly educated fighter. And in this situation, he did a great job of putting Gon into uncomfortable spots in the cage. And I think that he deserves full marks for that. Like, I, I just, I was really impressed. And my colleague Dan Tom, who had, you know, basically said that he thought, he, he picked Gon, but he said that there was a lot of value on Tuivasa, and specifically in the second round, because that is where Tuivasa is very dangerous. And I thought that he did a fantastic job of crowding Gon, of getting Gon into uncomfortable ranges that, he needed to really be slippery in, and he, he did his best. But then caught him in the second round and dropped him. And scored, I think, the first time. I, I, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. I think this is the first time he's been knocked down in a fight. It is, yes. Yeah, statistically, first time he's been knocked down in a fight. And Gon gave him a lot of credit after the fight. said, I thought I was done. He said, I thought I was out. He said, I've never felt like that before. He said, Ty was the heaviest hitter he faced. And Ty Tuivasa brilliantly got Cyril Gon into... A spot on the cage where he was at a disadvantageous position. And that's the way that you beat Cyril Gaon in that kind of a matchup. Where Cyril Gaon has so many advantages over Tai Tuivasa. Uh, in terms of the range. In terms of the speed. You can check all these boxes that Gaon has. And that's why he was a nearly 7-1 to one favorite in this one. Is The only way that Tai Tuivasa was going to win this was by implementing the perfect game plan and hitting him with the perfect shot. And he did all of that. But it wasn't enough to put Gaon away. Very, very close to... A stunning upset in Cyril Gaon's backyard of, of Paris, France. I was very impressed with Taito Ivasa, given those circumstances. But you also have to give full credit to Cyril Gaon, because he looked unbelievable. And personally, if it were up to me, and I was in charge of how the heavyweight division moves forward, this is how I would do it. I'd say, well, we can't get John Jones and Stipe set up, it doesn't seem. If that fight is available... I still think I think you you abandon that game, that plan. I think you take Cyril Gaon and you put him against John Jones. I think that fight would be spectacular from a technical standpoint. You got two big guys. If you're going to put John Jones in this division, he wants to move up. Put him against somebody who has similar weapons to him, and see how he does. Because I think that Cyril Gaon against John Jones would be a tremendous fight. You make that for an interim title, and then Francis Ngannou faces the winner. That's what I would do. Sorry to Stipe Miocic, I know he lost the title, but he's been fairly inactive. You've got to reward the activity of a Cyril Gaon. Coming off of a very close fight against Francis Ngannou, mind you, one that had you given Cyril Gaon that fifth round, I would not have fought you on that. Like that Cyril Gaon could have won that fight. And I understand that Ngannou was fighting injured and all of that. But Cyril Gaon was very close to winning that fight. He was one leg lock attempt away from winning that fight. I, I firmly believe that. So, I think you reward Cyril Gaon. You do Cyril Gaon versus John Jones. You do it in December. Gaon says he's interested. I don't know how much time he needs to recover. I mean, he was dropped in that fight. Might want to take a little bit of time. But it is September, so you got one month to October. So three months away. You got three months. Give him whatever three weeks to recover. And ask him to start an eight-week camp. I mean, I think that's the fight you make. And then I think if, if Stipe Miocic is willing to fake Curtis Blades, you do that. 
Or, unfortunately, Curtis Blades is kind of in no man's land. Because if you look at the UFC rankings, I'll pull them up now. There's not really a great suitor for Curtis Blades. If you're going to do Gone versus John Jones. Probably, like, it would probably just be tied to Ivasa, really. Or actually, Sergei Pavlovich is moving his way up. You could do Blades versus Pavlovich, Blades versus Tuivasa. I think either of those fights makes sense. Even a Blades-Lewis rematch, but Lewis is kind of on a skid right now. So I don't know if uh, they would want to do that. And I don't know if Blades would want to sign that bout of Whitman personally. If I'm him, that's a, a very low, ups- low upside proposition if you do that. But personally, I just think that Jones versus Gone, that's the fight. Like, that's, that's the fight I want to see. No disrespect to Stipe, but I, I don't know what's going on with that. Like, that fight's been rumored for the whole year, and we haven't seen anything. And we keep hearing Jones is going to fight on this date. Jones is going to fight on this date. We haven't heard a firm Stipe is going to face Jones. I don't know what's going on with Stipe. But personally, I abandon that fight. I go Cyril Gon versus John Jones. I mean, call me crazy, but that's the way I would do it. Make that for an interim title. And then I think that that's the best way to establish the pecking order of the heavyweight division. Cyril Gon's still the number one ranked fighter in that division behind the champion. If you're going to fast-track John Jones, that's who you do it against. I understand the Stipe is probably the greatest heavyweight the UFC's ever had in terms of credentials. And doing Jones versus Stipe, it's a big fight. But I still think Jones versus Gone is a, an equally big fight. That's what I would do. But Cyril Gone looked phenomenal in that fight. I mean, you look at how good he was at attacking the body of Tuivasa, of diversifying his attack. And yeah, people will talk about that shot to the back of the head right before the finishing, like during the finishing sequence. But I kind of don't fault Mark Goddard for not calling a timeout there, honestly. Like, you're gonna, th- you're basically gonna disqualify Gone or get, or make it a no contest at that point in time, when when the fight is basically on the on the precipice of ending. Even the, and that shot was was kind of a, a token shot. It wasn't even the shot that that put. Tuivasa into any sort of trouble. It's all that body work. I mean, you could, you could, he could have verbally warned him and said, "Watch the back of the head." That's probably the extent to which I would have done something if I'm Mark Goddard. So, I mean, honestly, I, I don't think anybody should be criticizing Mark Goddard in that situation. But Cyril Gon looked phenomenal, and he, when he started to turn up the volume on Tai Tuivasa, he knew it was just a matter of time. And Tai Tuivasa's chin, whew. You have Marvin Vittori in the co-main event tied to Ivasa. Like, that's that's the all-chin first team. Unbelievable performance for Cyril Gaon, tied to Ivasa. Um, how many times has he been finished in the UFC? This is his second KO loss. He lost by KO to Junior Dos Santos back about four years ago. And it was submitted by Sergey Spivak three years ago. Then went on that win streak, five-fight win streak. Finally got towards the top of the ladder, and Cyril Gaon puts a stop to that. Those big odds looked like looked like Tuivasa was the value side for some time, but uh, Cyril Gaon gets it done. So, kudos to him. And like I said, if it's up to me, I'm doing Gaon versus John Jones. I'm I'm saying forget Stipe. Let's make that fight. You got two guys. Let's co- let's compare these two guys in terms of side by side. So for Cyril Gaon, six foot four. 81 inch reach and john jones i think has uh a 90 something some sort of crazy reach if i recall 84 and a half so it's not not a crazy same height not the craziest reach advantage that's why it's such an interesting fight to me you got two guys that are so similar in terms of their build in terms of um and also in terms of their skills very very strong technical fighters john would have i think a marked wrestling advantage there but 
In terms of technical striking, I don't know if there's anybody as good as Cyril Ghan in the heavyweight. I'm not sure if we've ever seen a heavyweight with the technical striking acumen of a Cyril Ghan. He's just so precise. His defense is great. His um, range is phenomenal. Range control, distance control, phenomenal. Just aren't a lot of fighters like Cyril Ghan that we've seen in the UFC. And I think everybody needed that reminder over the weekend of just how good this guy is. Because he looked absolutely tremendous in that fight. So congratulations to him. And for Taito Ivasa, I don't think that his stock went down after that fight. I think him dropping Cyril Ghan in the second, and like I said off the top here, he deserves so much credit for how he strategized that fight. Because nobody has had Cyril Ghan in that kind of trouble before, where he almost, they almost finished him. Nobody. So for him to be able to do that should be a, a big feather in his cap going forward. Still quite young as well. Like, Ty is 29 years old. In heavyweight, like, he's a baby in the heavyweight division at 29. So lots of time for him to continue to, to shore up his skills. And I think on any given night, with the, the kind of power that he has, and really the speed that he has, he's very, very light on his feet for a guy as big as he is. Former rugby player. You know, he's, he's big, but he can move. I think that he's got a, you know, still has the potential to become a champion one day. He's that good. And I think he showed a, a fight IQ that cannot be denied in that fight. So, you know, moral victory, in my opinion, for Taito Ibaza. I don't think he and his team see it that way. But he, he brought the fight to Gon and gave him the toughest bout of his career in terms of adversity. Co-main event, Robert Whitaker defeats Marvin Vittori. And if you needed a reminder of how good Robert Whitaker is... This was it. I have never seen... Uh, Ro- Marvin Vittori has one of the best chins in MMA. But one thing that you have to say about Marvin Vittori is his resolve, his confidence, is up there with anybody in the UFC. Like, he... I don't think that we've ever seen his confidence shaken like it was against Robert Whitaker in that fight. Like, there was a, a point in that fight, it was probably about midway through the second round, where it was like, yeah, this guy's better than me. Like, I, you know, I think that Marvin Vittori... After that fight, that was the first time I think he thought that he had legitimately like lost a fight in the UFC. I can't remember the fight that he had with Carlos Jr. He was really he was probably like twenty one or twenty two when he had that fight. But in terms of this era of Marvin Vittori, where he's a top five middleweight, like where's he ranked right now? He's in the middleweight division. He's ranked number two. He was tied with Cannoneer in the last rankings. I think that you look at. Robert Whitaker and what he did in that fight. Like, I think that Vittori was like, this guy's just better. This guy is better than I am, and I need to work. I need to go to work. Because Vittori, too, is, is quite young. He's he's 28 years old, turning 29. Actually, just turned 28 years old. No, sorry, turning 29 this month. Still very young as well. And one of the most well-rounded guys. Like, there's nothing that he does particularly excellently, but he does everything really, really well. Like, he's a problem for anybody in middleweight. In fact, whoever he's facing next, I think is is I think he'll probably beat them. Like you know, unless it's like an Alex Pereira or something. If, if Pereira loses to Israel, like and even against Alex Pereira, I mean, Vittori's chin if it holds up, he could wrestle him, take him down, make his life miserable too. Although we always talk about this narrative with Alex Pereira, we haven't really seen anybody do that to him. <laughs> They've taken him down and really made it made it a tough night for him. So that could just be hypothesizing, really. Guy from striking sport comes to MMA. Cannot stop takedowns. Is bad on ground. It's not quite that simple. But man, Robert Whitaker is so good. 
Like, I, I wrote that on Twitter, but he really is so good. And he's lucky. Like, Robert Whitaker, when he became champion of the middleweight division, it was back at UFC 213. He won the interim championship. GSP was the champ. GSP retired. He became the undisputed champion. Defended the title against Yoel Romero, although I, I think Romero won that fight personally. But either way, and that's kind of his lone title defense, but it was also a non-title bout. So he actually doesn't have any title defenses under his uh, belt. But you look at the strength of schedule that he's fought outside of Israel. Vittori, Gastelum, Cannoneer, Till, Romero twice, Jacare, Derek Brunson, Rafael Natal, Uriah Hall, Brad Tavares. Like those, that's the con- consecutive win streak. And Clint Hester was his first fight. He was a pretty good fighter, actually. I don't think a lot of people talk about Clint Hester much, but he was a good boxer. That's a great run. Like, it's a phenomenal middleweight run. He's one of the all-time great middleweights. What I was getting at was, he's lucky he didn't end up in Joseph Benavidez territory, like, where he is, like, the clear second-best guy in the division. Like, Joseph Benavidez, if there's no Mighty Mouse, is probably a long-reigning champion of the flyweight division. Like, he was that much better than everybody else. He was beating everybody. That wasn't named Demetrius Johnson. Then by the time Demetrius Johnson was out, Benavidez was 35, and he was facing these up-and-comers. Like, it's, it's a tough... He had a tough road in terms of his career because he was good enough to be champion probably in the, both the bantamweight and flyweight division. But he... Bad mismatch against Dominic Cruz, pretty much. Like, if he would have fought Cruz, and, and he did fight Cruz, but if he would have continued to stay in bantamweight and fight Cruz, that would have been tough skating for him. And then the Demetrius Johnson, you know, loses to Demetrius Johnson in the first fight, a very competitive fight, the first ever flyweight title fight. But Robert Whitaker could have gotten stuck in this kind of no-man's land. But thankfully, he already has the, like, he has that notch on his belt that he's been the, the middleweight champion of the world, right? Like, he's been the undisputed champion. So he's lucky that Israel didn't kind of come along a little bit earlier. And he was able to be the best guy for a while. And now, I mean, he's clearly a notch better than everybody else in the division on top, uh, you know, outside of Israel. That win over Vittoria, I think, showed it. Like, he, that was, I thought he won all three rounds clean. First round was all, was tight, but I, I gave it to Whitaker. I thought he landed the better strikes. But Marvin Vittori is just like, nothing shakes this guy. He looked shook in that fight. And that says something about how good Robert Whitaker is. And I'm sure after the fact, Vittori probably will acknowledge that Whitaker was the better man and that he needs to work on some of his skills to get better. Because, you know, going into that fight, I thought it was a bad matchup for Vittori. I think Vittori's got a very high fight IQ. But Robert Whitaker's fight IQ is like, whew! Like, that's an A-plus fight IQ. Versus an A-minus fight IQ, or A fight IQ for Vittori. So, uh, you know... Robert Whitaker should fight Israel again at some point. I just don't know who else they're going to throw at him. You look at this. He he said after the fight, he's like, I'll be lurking. And the, the Reaper is lurking. But there's really nobody else you can match him against. He's beaten everybody. He beat Kennedy or beat Vittori, beat Brunson. Alex Pajeda, when he fights Israel, like if, if he loses that fight, I think Robert Whitaker gets a trilogy fight. Paulo Costa's not moving up. He's not going to be in the mix. Sean Strickland just lost that Pajeda in pretty devastating fashion. I mean, that would be an interesting matchup, Whitaker versus Strickland. But nothing tells me that Strickland would win that fight. 
And then you keep moving down the ladder. I mean, let's see what Andre Muniz can do and what Drikas Duplessis can do and that Nasruddin Imovov, who was on this card, what they can do. Like, those are the guys that are going to start, they're going to have to start matching Whitaker up against because he's just run through everybody else. And you're going you know, to try to build these new contenders, but it could be a situation where they just can't because as soon as people run into Whitaker, they're going to lose. And that's why a trilogy fight is probably sooner rather than later because Israel's beaten a lot of these guys too. He's beaten Whitaker twice. He's beaten Cannoneer. Beaten Vittori twice. He's beaten, he never fought Brunson because Brunson uh, kept getting stopped by gatekeepers as well. Alex Bejera is next up for Israel. Again, Sean Strickland never made it up. Jack Hermanson never made it up there. Darren Till, they've been talking about that for a long time, but he's never gotten the wins needed. His best wins over a, a close decision win over Calvin Gastelum. These young guys coming up, those are the interesting ones because... How does Israel face a guy like Andre Muniz? Like, he's going to have to keep it standing. Otherwise, he's going to lose. <laughs> you know, like, Andre Muniz is, is jiu-jitsu. is as good as anybody right now in MMA. He's phenomenal. Imovov's getting better. We saw that. Although he, he could work on his cardio a little bit. That middleweight division is going to be a tough one to pin down because I just think Whitaker is better than everybody else not named Israel as Esonia. Speaking of Imovov, Nasruddin Imovov defeats Joaquin Buckley. 29-28, 29-28, and 30-27, a one-score card that I I don't quite understand. I thought that uh, Buckley pretty clearly won that third round, but hey, I'm not sitting cage side, and uh, I'm not submitting scorecards. But Imovov's going to be a problem. Like, he's 27 years old. When did he turn 20? Sorry, 26 years old. Just turned 26 in March. Like, turning 27 in, in like six months got great physicality for the division he's very well-rounded he's got a ton of confidence i didn't like his antics in that fight like i i thought mark goddard could have penalized him honestly he, he slapped buckley after the bell like to me you take a point away a lot of extracurriculars that's that's not the guy you want to mess with is mark goddard in the cage like that's the wrong that's the wrong referee to try those shenanigans on but uh imovov gets the win there i i think he's gonna have some big things ahead of him he's just a really really strong fighter really good and I don't know why it took him this long in the year to compete, because his last fight was last November in MSG. And obviously, if he's getting into MSG, he probably doesn't have any visa issues. But uh, although that did take place before the Ukraine conflict, so maybe that maybe there is an issue. Although I think he has French citizenship. I think he's lived in France for a long time. Either way, a strong performance against Joaquin Buckley. You know, Buckley's going to have problems with a lot of these bigger guys in the division. He's kind of a, a stockier fighter for middleweight, and that's it's. He's five foot eight. He's my height. He's he's big though. Like you know, I, I don't know how comfortably he could cut down to one seventy. In fact, I think that eighty five is probably a better weight class for him because he, he he can hit harder. But I still think he's going to have a bit of a ceiling when it comes to facing these big dudes. Like you look at the, a lot of those guys I mentioned on the rankings list. Like they're all much bigger than he is. So. Buckley's going to have to learn how to kind of exploit that, kind of take the Kelvin Gastelum path, but I just don't think his wrestling is good enough that he can do that. Imovov gets the win. Roman Kopilov defeats Alessio DiCirico. Third round, just put it on him. I think it's his first UFC win. Strong win for him. This is the interesting one here for me. I think it's the worst scorecard we've seen all year. William Gomi defeats... Yarno Aarons, 29-28, 29-28, 29-29. Now, I know that the French Commission is brand new, 
And this is a French referee who's never judged the UFC before. But you cannot give a 10-10 scorecard for the third round of that fight. Like, it's just not a possibility. There's so much to score in that round. Like, a 10-10 would mean that the striking is 100% even. And that's not even what it means. I'll get to that, too. But if your thought was the striking's 100% even, the grappling's 100% even, the aggression's 100% even, like, the effective aggressiveness, effective grappling, effective strike, all of that is equal. You, st- you still can't even give a 10-10. Like, there's so much that happened. Let's go and look at that fight for a second in terms of the statistics, because take a look at the third round. So in the third round, we had Gomi outstriking Yarno Aaron's 12-5. to But the big story for that one was the submission attempt, because there was a submission attempt by Yarno Aaron's, who had a pretty tight triangle, I believe it was, in the third round. And then in terms of takedowns, you had Gomi landing one one of one. Not that that matters that much, but had three minutes and 27 seconds of control time. So he landed more strikes, got caught in that triangle. If you're a judge, make a decision. Is it the triangle that you think is, the, like the tight triangle? Is that what, give, what you think is the most effective part of the round? It was more effective than the accumulation that Gomi had? You, you have so much in front of you that you can score. Giving a 10-10 round is just unacceptable. Like, it's... I don't know if this guy hasn't taken the courses or doesn't know the literature because, because a 10-10 round really is only used... And this was in the notes that were given in terms of the, the pyramid, scoring pyramid, from the Association of Boxing Commission's conference just a couple months ago. Like, we're talking two months ago. Like, there's information that is so easily accessible that shows that a 10-10 round should only be used in a situation where there's an incomplete round. Where you cannot say with a definitive statement that so-and-so won the round. That the round wasn't complete, it was close, 10-10. It's the only time it's used. So to use a 10-10 round is really uh, abdication of your duties. And it's unfortunate because, again, this is a new commission. I want to see local judges, especially in a region like France, where you're going to see a lot more events. Like this guy's judged Eros cards many times and judged in the region since MMA was legalized there. He's going to get experience. And this, I hope he takes as a learning experience because... It's foolish. It honestly looks foolish on the judges that you have a 10-10 round, a complete round with a lot to score. And like I said, it's an application of duty. That's that's what I would call it because you're there to score the round. You're there to judge. If you're not going to judge, then don't judge. You're sitting cage side. You got a ton of information in front of you. Just make it. You have to discern who won that round. Like period. And I know I've taken a course or whatever. It doesn't make me the king of judges. But I'm just surprised that this judge, um, Christophe Chapuis, who's a local judge, doesn't know that that's when a 10-10 would be used. Like, I, I think that that's problematic. He'll know going forward, I'm sure. But, yeah, largely pro- problematic. But at the end of the day, the right guy won the fight, thankfully. No harm, no foul. It's one scorecard. 
This judge didn't like ruin anybody's night, didn't cost anybody their bonus money or anything. Like you can't point at him and say like this this one guy is responsible. No, no. Everything worked out. So let's wash our hands here. Let's take a step back and have the commission talk to Christophe Chapuis and explain to him. I'm sure he knows this by now. Believe me. He has to know this by now. That a 10-10 round is only used in a very, very, very specific situation. And that was not it. That was not close to it. Now, again, this is just me hypothesizing here. And I don't know. I might be speaking out of, out of turn. But Chapuis was the only judge that gave... Aaron's the second round, if I'm not mistaken. I'll go to MMA Decisions quickly just so I make sure I'm getting this right. If you look at the scorecards, all three judges were aligned. Gomi in the first round. Chapuis gave Aaron's the second round. Now, what I'm wondering is, did he mean to give it to Gomi? Because looking at the stats, like it seems to me like Gomi probably won that round. So I'm wondering if maybe he wrote 10-9 on the wrong side and was like, oh, I need to correct this. And he, he gave a 10-10 just to like get the math. to. But I, I don't know. Maybe that's why. No idea. But I just got to say, I think that uh, submitting a 10-10 scorecard there is, is just unacceptable, really. But I think that, again, nothing terrible came of this. And I'm sure that something good will come of it because... He will learn from this experience. I'm sure that the Federation spoke to him after the fact and were like, listen, you know, what was the, the rationale for scoring this 10-10? Because this sort of a round, under no circumstances, should be scored a 10-10. And when it happened, I wrote on Twitter, I wrote, that's basically an impossible scorecard. <laughs> because, like, if you're doing the job correctly, that, that you can't give a 10-10 there for the most part. There's just too much to score. And there's no way you can say... Because, let's say you go just down to... Effective grappling, whatever, the, or the third, sorry, there's a, a effective aggressiveness. Let me just pull it up. I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. So, judging criteria in MMA. Like, you can look this up. It's, it's readily available. Um, all right, this is a report. but All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this up. We got the unified rules of MMA. So, yeah. So let's say you're looking at effective striking and grappling. You say it's 100% equal. And you move down to the secondary criteria. Then you've got effective aggressiveness. So if you're looking at the third round, who's, who's being more aggressive? And if you think that's 100%, fighting area control. So if you're going to go with just fighting area control, you can't say that that's equal because one guy's got a ton of top control for that round. So if you're scoring just on top control, it's obvious that Gobin won that round obvious like so even if you're going down that criteria you're going piece piece by piece by piece of the prioritized criteria first off the tertiary criteria should almost never ever 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 be used like 0.0001% of the time like one out of every 10,000 fights like it's rarely are you scoring a fight on fighting area control if you're a judge it it in fact, 99% of the time, you won't go to effective aggressiveness. 99.9% of the time. Like, you're not going to go to effective aggressiveness. You should have enough in front of you. And I, I believe there was more than enough in front of these judges for the effect of striking and grappling to, to just pick one side. So, again, I just think that this judge hopefully learns from this experience. He's a former fighter. And I know people want to see more former fighters in the chair. So, you fist your wish. 
but there's going to be growing pains for any judge. And uh, I think this was uh, an example of that. Nathaniel Wood defeats Charles Jordan. Now, a lot of people are saying Charles Jordan, maybe he shouldn't have fought so soon after that war with Burgos, and maybe that is true. But at the same time, Nathaniel Wood looked great. Like, don't ta- let's not take anything away from Nathaniel Wood in this situation. Nathaniel Wood was fast. He was being effective with his takedowns. He was setting a lot of traps. And um, he beat Jordan, uh, you know, 30-27 on two scorecards, 29-28 on another. And I think Jordan might want to take a little bit more time before his next fight to just kind of shore up some skills. Because it looked like his takedown defense had really been getting better. I mean, you looked at it, the Burgos fight, you looked at it against Venato where he scored that submission. But Wood was able to kind of trip him at will. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with how aggressive Jordan is. Like, uh, Jordan's always looking to capitalize on any little hole. But that aggressiveness can also be a strength and can be a weakness as well. Because, you, you know, if you're being offensive, you got to make sure you're also being defensive. And it's hard to do when you're when you're Charles Jordan and you know that you're behind on the cards and you're trying to find a knockout in the third round, really, because I'm sure he knew he was down two rounds. So... Great fight for Nathaniel Wood. You know, this guy was considered to be a top prospect for some time at 135 pounds. He had won, what do we got here, eight in a row. Then he lost to John Dodson. He got knocked out by John Dodson. Then he got a win over John Castaneda. And then he lost to Casey Kenny. And I think after that, people were kind of like, he lost a lot of that momentum that he had. Like, a lot of people thought that this guy was going to be a champion when they had bantamweight. Now he's moved up to 45. He's 2-0 at 45. Still on the smaller side, but he's also really fast. And when I spoke to Charles last week, he said, you know, speed kills. And uh, that's what he needed to be careful of. And, you know, Nathaniel Wood did a really good job in that matchup, given the circumstances. So kudos to him. Uh, I think he's. I think at 45, this is a much better place for him. He's going to be able to take fights on short notice, be healthier, better for his long-term health, I think. Although, it's, you know, when you're talking about the, the murderer's row of 145 pounds, not that bantamweight's any softer. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's uh, a lot. It's tough skating once he's getting to those ranked uh, positions in those two divisions. Abus Magomedov defeats Dustin Stolzfus 19 seconds. Beautiful front kick. Hopefully we see more of this guy. Got the Magom, the, the 50th win for someone with Magomed in their name in the UFC. I think it's like 50 and 8 overall record now. If you have Magomed in your name, 86% chance. Well, 86% winning percentage. There's not a chance you're going to win because matchups are different. But, uh, yeah. Nezrat Hackbrass defeats John McDessie. Kind of a grudge match between two former training partners. They hugged it out at the end. Good for them. But Nezrat Hackbrass, this was a good matchup for Hackbrass in terms of just uh, X's and O's. And I thought that he took advantage of of that in this fight. Fares Ziam defeats... Mikhail Figlak. Figlak sounds like a Klingon word. Now, I'm not a big Star Trek guy. You know, it's funny. If I say that, you know, it sounds like Klingon, people are going to be like, ah, oh, this guy is a Trekkie. I've never seen a single full episode of Star Trek, but I've watched the two movies, the newer movies. I've watched the first two newer movies in that series. That's like the extent of Star Trek that I know. But then other people are going to be like, oh, you're, you know, you're, you don't watch Star Trek. What kind of, you don't understand culture. But either way, can't win. Either you're too into Star Trek or you're not into Star Trek enough. I'm in the middle. I'm gray, gray area Bronstetter. 
But Ziam looked phenomenal in that fight. Whew. Figalak was considered a top prospect going into this fight. And uh, Perez Ziam showed that maybe he's the prospect. Maybe he's the guy to watch. Yeah, I know he had that bad uh, loss to Terrence McKinney, but he's 25 years old. Lost to Don Madge. That was back in 2019, so we're talking three years ago now. Win over Jamie Malarkey. A lot of people thought that was a controversial win because the third round, Malarkey had all this top control. But uh, go back and watch that. If you're looking at damage, I think for SZM. And at the time, I thought that, that was a bad scorecard. But for SZM, landed more damage. Majority decision over Luigi Ventramini. But then he got completely smoked earlier this year by Terrence McKinney. That was the last fight on his contract. It didn't look like they were going to bring him back. He was off the roster page. And then they need somebody to face Figlock short notice. Right place, right time. He was training in France. Good to go. And uh, he really, really took advantage of that opportunity. So kudos to him. Benoit Saint-Denis defeats Gabriel Miranda. This looked like it was a, a lopsided fight. Um, a lot of people were questioning Miranda's credentials, the types of fights he was having on the regional scene. And I think that that ended up being justified. <laughs> Benoit Saint-Denis put it on him. Christian Quinones. Uh, former training partner of Brandon Moreno, who I believe was in his corner, or was uh, at least there cheering him on. Great win for him over Khalid Taha. He looked phenomenal. Right before that fight, I was like, oh, wow, it's like knockout proper, like 7-1. to one. And I was like, eh, let's just see how this guy looks. Because walking out to the cage, he had, this, he had a glimmer in his eye. I could tell that he was there to play for keeps. And he looked great. Stephanie Egger bounces back off of a uh, controversial submission loss to Myra Bueno Silva a couple weeks back. Defeats Eileen Perez. 145 pounds. Now, Perez was talking all kinds of smack on uh, Amanda Nunez on Twitter. And uh, Nina Nunez, yeah, she, she, she made that made sure she uh, brought that back up to the surface. Because uh, Stephanie Egger got that win and uh, looked like it was a, a pretty easy win for her. And Aylan Perez was like, I'm going to beat Amanda Nunez. I was like, well, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. It's good to have confidence, but, you know. Pump those brakes. Pump those brakes. I'm heading to Las Vegas on Thursday morning. We've got a UFC pay-per-view ahead of us. The last fight on Nate Diaz's uh, contract, and uh, also Nate Diaz just announced that he's going to be starting his own promotion going forward. So, good for Nate. It's, he's uh, staying in the fight game, regardless of, of course, what happens in this fight. But the, uh, the UFC certainly did not give him a, a parting gift here. This is the opposite of that. This is like, we're firing you with cause. <laughs> Basically the equivalent to that. Because Hamza Shumayev has been an absolute smash machine. And he is a 12-1 to 1 favorite over Nate Diaz. According to our friends at FanDuel Canada. Diaz, a plus 630 underdog. Whew! Yeah, that's, uh, those are long odds. Those are long odds. So we will see what happens uh, in this one. But uh, yeah, Shumayev, a... Sizable, sizable favorite. Five-round fight. Last fight of Nate Diaz's contract. Apparently, Nate Diaz wanted this fight. He wants to, to fight the people that have the hype. Smart from a business standpoint, but uh, not if you're not going to win. And uh, the odds would indicate that, that he is not going to win. But, as we've seen in mixed martial arts many times in the past, anything can happen in this sport. Just when you think you know it all. You know, the whole world can come crashing down. Uh, on you in terms of what you think you know about this sport. And Nate Diaz has played spoiler before. And this is the ultimate position to play spoiler in. Like, it's the last fight of his contract. Hamza Shemaev has been anointed as a future champion. 
He's undefeated. Like, if you're going to spoil a party, this is the party to spoil. This is the this is the big one. This is the ultimate spoiler, if he's able to beat Hamza Shemaev. Do I think it'll happen? I do not. I think that this is a, a very, very tough matchup for Nate Diaz. But would I like to see what would happen in the aftermath of if he did win? Oh, yeah. Well, that would be fun to see. That would be a lot of fun to see. That being said, I uh, don't know if we are going to see that. <laughs> so let's uh, let's see what happens. I mean, listen, from a matchup standpoint, if I, if I look at 170 pounds with Nate Diaz and I look at his fight with Rory McDonald that took place in Toronto, I know he's a different fighter now. But I think we could very well see that same kind of thing. Or that uh, Nick Diaz fight against RDA, where it was just like takedown, rinse, repeat. And I know Diaz said he was injured going into that fight. But uh, yeah, I mean, if Shemaev keeps us on the feet, and maybe he could because Shemaev is still a good striker, and maybe he wants to make a statement, he'll be putting himself in some danger. And even if he takes it to the ground, you know, Nate Diaz has a good triangle. He's shown that in the past too. So there are ways for Nate Diaz to win this fight. Like you, you can't say this is an impossible task. But the odds are certainly stacked against them. So, best of luck to Nate Diaz this week because uh, he might need it. This is not a, a great situation that they uh, uh, the UFC have put him in. We have a co-main event now. A couple weeks ago, we did not. Li Jinglang is a minus 295 favorite, according to our friends at FanDuel. Tony Ferguson, plus 220. Now, Tony Ferguson looked good in that fight against Chandler until he didn't, until he took that kick. 170 pounds, he's going to be bigger. He's going to be faster, I think. I don't mind this spot for Tony Ferguson. Like, if you were going to bet Tony Ferguson, I think this is a dog or pass situation all the way. Li Jing Lang's a great fighter, but uh, wherever this fight goes, Tony Ferguson is going to have a chance. It's not like Tony Ferguson's this chinny guy. Like, he just, he just took a, a massive beating at the hands of Justin Gaethje that might have changed him. But he also went all three rounds against Charles Oliveira. And we've seen what Charles Oliveira has done since. Chandler, he got knocked out by. I think that front kick would have knocked any human being on the planet out based on how it connected. In this situation, 170 pounds, Tony Ferguson, co-main event, big spot. Yeah, plus 220. I might take Tony Ferguson this week. I haven't done my recommended plays just yet. I haven't thought about it. But, uh... I honestly think that uh, this is a good spot for Tony Ferguson. I think that from a matchup standpoint, I just don't know where Li Jinglang has a massive advantage over him. I think Tony Ferguson is the more complete fighter. But again, he's moving up a weight class. I don't know what he's going to look like at 70. He hasn't, hasn't fought in 70 for a long time. But his chin will probably be better at 70. If I have, you know, less weight to cut. He'll be able to come into that fight bigger. He's always been a really big lightweight. He probably should have been fighting at welterweight for some time now. He's been talking about it for years. We've also got a catchweight bout between Kevin Holland and Daniel Rodriguez. I'm not sure. Why. I see on the UFC site it says catchweight. Not exactly sure what weight is contracted at. I'm going to see if I can pull this up here. 180 pounds catchweight. So Rodriguez has fought mostly at welterweight um, in his recent history. Fought at middleweight in his debut. Since then, it's been welterweight. Had one catchweight fight at 182. But uh, most of Holland's fights have been at 85. He recently made the move down to 70. This is a short notice assignment. So I think that they uh, cut both these guys some slack. Made it 180. Found a, a good medium. 
the odds on this one, you've got Kevin Holland as a minus 196 favorite, according to FanDuel, plus 152 for Daniel Rodriguez. Tough matchup, honestly, for Rodriguez. I think that uh, Rodriguez is able to really smother people and suffocate them, but Holland is just so good with his range and his distance, and I think against a guy like Rodriguez, I think that the odds for this fight are basically just right. Like, this is where you want it. It's a strange fight for Rodriguez to take coming back because I think it's a really tough opponent. So, the, you know, I, I would lean Holland in terms of a pick. In terms of the odds, there might even be some value, honestly, on, on Holland at 180 pounds in this particular spot. It might be worth having him as a parlay piece. Irene Aldana's minus 186. Macy Chase on plus 144. Chase on had a really good performance against uh, Norma Dumont. This fight, however, is at uh, Bantamweight where Macy is ranked number 10, Aldana ranked number 4. Aldana, a minus 186 favorite. Chase on plus 144, as I mentioned before. Yeah, I, another tough one to call, because I, I think that Chase on's coming off a good performance. Aldana has not looked as good lately, but when Aldana looks good, she looks really good. I think that she is the rightful favorite here. I don't know if I would uh, put that kind of, you know... Lay that kind of a price. I think I would probably wait for the prop to see what a decision prop is. But Aldana's also got some good knockout power. We've seen Chase on get finished. So let's see how that plays out. Because uh, I think Aldana is one of the top bantamweights in the world today. And uh, Chase on also just keeps getting better every single fight, it seems. So tough one to call. Johnny Walker taking on Iwan Kute Laba. Kute Lava, minus 196. Johnny Walker, plus 152. I would take the Walker side here, honestly. I think the Johnny Walker, plus 152, is the right... Like, I, I think he's the better fighter here. I'm surprised he's this big of an underdog. Yeah, I know Ewan's training uh, in Vegas, but... Yeah, I mean, Walker's the heavier hitter. I think Walker will have the better cardio. Interesting. Interesting that he's uh, this big of a favorite. That, that will be one of my TSN Edge recommended plays. I can tell you that right now. I think this is the um, lowest... Level fighter that Walker's fought in some time. Now, if Walker's chin is completely shot, Ewan will be able to catch him with something, I'm sure. But uh, we'll see how it goes. Hakeem Dawadu is headlining the TSN prelims. Prelims started at 8 o'clock p.m. on TSN. Hakeem Dawadu is a minus 225 favorite to come back on Julian Arosa, plus 172. I think that uh, Dawoodi should win this fight. I mean, I think that he is the, the more well-rounded fighter here. I think that as long as he keeps us on the feet, he'll have a big advantage in this fight. Now, it's going to be an interesting body type for Dawoodi because Arosa is long. He's he's tricky. He uh, gets people into chokes. But Dawoodi is also very stocky. He's not an easy guy to get into a choke. So uh, I would lean Hakeem Dawoodi here. If you wanted to parlay Dawoodi with uh, Kevin Holland, uh, I would not fault you. I think that would be a pretty safe parlay. Jake Collier minus three ninety. Chris Barnett plus two eighty. Whoo, heavyweights. This I, the odds should not be this long. Whoo, man. Like <laughs> I'd probably recommend the Barnett play just on principle here because these are you know neither of these guys is a heavy hitter. I think that this ends up going to a decision and really it could go either way. I would go Chris Barnett here at plus two eighty honestly. Uh, we've got Alatang Haley minus one eighty. Chad and Helliger plus one forty. And Helliger's looked really good since coming to the UFC. Uh, since winning on Contender Series. I uh, don't have a strong read on this one, though. I, I would have to look into some of Alatang Haley's more recent fights and just kind of get more of a taste uh, of how he's fought recently. Norma Dumont, minus 340. Danielle Wolf, plus 250. 
Ooh, normally Dumont should be on every single parlay. Uh, no disrespect to Danielle Wolf, but Danielle Wolf is like nearing 40. I think this is her second or third MMA fight. One on Contender Series a couple of years ago has been completely inactive since then. Whereas Norma Dumont is winning, you know, against tough opponents. Uh, Norma Dumont, I think, is an automatic parlay piece for you. If you if you need a parlay piece, like put Norma Dumont on your ticket. I think that this fight is not going to be competitive. And uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll eat my words next week, and uh, everyone can laugh at me. If that happens, that's fine. Uh, Melissa Martinez minus one seventy eight. Elise Reed plus one thirty eight. Tough performance from uh, Elise Reed last time around. I thought that. Um, you know, I, I I thought that she did not look great. If I recall, she lost her last fight. Um, I'm going to just pull that up and make sure that I'm thinking of the right situation here. But I, I, I had taken her, I thought, in her last fight. And, uh, yeah, she lost to Sam Hughes. And uh, Melissa Martinez, undefeated, 7-0. She's uh, got a lot of hype coming uh, from Combate America. Combate America. It's not, not from Brazil. Then it would be Combate Combatch, but Combate has a win over Desiree Yanez in her last fight. But uh, she's supposed to have uh, been fighting in the UFC for some time. I, I can't remember when she signed, but she's been inactive for almost three years. So that's a bit of a, fl- a red flags. I, I don't want to touch that one. Daring Weeks minus 146. Johan Linus plus 114. I will be on the Linus side here. I think that... Uh, I think Linus is the more well-rounded fighter. Or I think Linus is the, the heavier hitter. I wouldn't necessarily say the uh, the more well-rounded fighter, but Johan Linus is uh, is due for a win in the UFC. I think that he underperformed in his last fight, and I think that the Canadian, the French-Canadian, gets it done. Will be cornered by my colleague at RDS, one Patrick Cote, the Predator. So best of luck to Johan Linus and all the other Canadians on the card. We have three Canadians on this uh, UFC 279 card, followed by three Canadians, I believe, next weekend, too. We've got uh, on next weekend's card, Tanner Bozer. We've got uh, Diana Belbitza, who's based in Stony Creek, Ontario. We've got uh, Jillian Robertson. So that's three. I feel like there was a fourth, but perhaps I'm wrong. But either way, lots of Canadians competing this month. And I look forward to seeing all of them. Yeah, oh, sorry, Marc-Andre Berrio. I forgot power bars on that card, too. All right. So there we go. That was uh, UFC 279. And uh, greatly looking forward to being down there. You can catch all of my coverage on tsn.za slash UFC. Trying to think if there's any sort of big news that's uh, been mentioned. Well, one thing that uh, Dave Shaw dropped after the event in Paris. He was down there and did the press conference after the fact. Mentioned that they're looking to do three cards in Canada next year. And they've been looking at doing a pay-per-view in Edmonton, Calgary, or Toronto. But it's just about finding dates that work with their pay-per-view schedule. That's great news. Very encouraging if you're a Canadian mixed martial arts fan. Now, I know that there are some changes that I think the UFC are looking to see get made to the uh, federal government policy on travel in terms of quarantining, in terms of vaccinations, etc. Because they have, you know, they're, they're, they have to bring a whole crew down. They have to bring fighters down, etc. I don't know if or when that's going to happen. So uh, that's a story to, to keep keep an eye on. But I think that uh, looking at the pay-per-view schedule for next year, if you just go month by month, there are not a whole lot of openings. Like, that's the problem. Usually in January, they do Vegas. This year, they're doing Rio. So you've got Rio in, in January. Usually, you know, historically, they had done Brazil in May, but they're doing it in January. So let's say that maybe they do a, a Vegas card in May, but let's, let's go through the calendar. February is... 
that's on the table. Uh, but I, I think that personally, that's the date that they would be looking at doing a card in the UK to do the rematch between Rocky Edwards and uh, Kamaru Usman. Because March is usually earmarked for Vegas. And April is usually earmarked for Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Now that's another one that they could move to the UK. But that's how the schedule usually shakes out. So we've got Rio in January. February is blank. Could be, could be in London or somewhere in, in the United Kingdom for that, uh, that big fight. March, I, I'm almost certain, will be Vegas. April, again, historically has been Brooklyn. May is kind of a, an interesting one because Brazil usually was in May. It's in January, so maybe they do a Vegas card in May if they need to do four in Vegas. I don't know exactly how their contract with T-Mobile and MGM or whatever is. I thought they had to do four pay-per-views a year in Vegas. but So if that's the case, May might be in Las Vegas. June, not sure where that would be. That's another one where you could look at uh, a pay-per-view in Canada. Don't know. July is almost always is always Vegas International Fight Week. This year, the end of July, so that was the 13th pay-per-view. Uh, I think next year they might do that same thing. So again, that's kind of open. You got August. is not, not usually earmarked for anything. Neither is September. October is Vegas usually, and December is usually Vegas. So And November is New York. And then October, I think, is going to be Abu Dhabi going forward. So you might have that second July card in Vegas. Or sorry, a uh, September card in Vegas, like they did this year. And by did I mean it's coming up this weekend. So that those are kind of that's kind of the skeleton of the pay-per-view events. So you'd have to find a spot for Toronto, and there's not a whole or, or whatever Edmonton or Calgary. There's not a whole lot of openings in terms of pay-per-view dates if you're looking at the you know the, the calendar historically. So that is going to be the interesting thing. For me is how that shakes out and uh, I really hope if, if they are going to do three days in Canada I would love to see them come back to Montreal or go somewhere in Quebec I, I think that market is hungry to get some uh, mixed martial arts back if they're not going to do Toronto I hope they do somewhere in Ontario or do a fight night in Toronto and then uh, I imagine the third event would be somewhere on the West Coast. Uh, if I had to guess, I think they might end up doing a pay-per-view in Edmonton or Calgary because there's just less concerts that go to those venues, right? Like, if you're looking at scheduling a specific date, I would guess that the Scotiabank Center is booked up for a lot of concerts next year already. So if you're looking for specific dates, Edmonton's got that newer arena there. Calgary, they, they did a fight night in. I expect... Probably one of those places. Vancouver, I think, would be great too, but I don't think that they're looking at Vancouver necessarily. So let's see how it plays out, but I'm very excited and very encouraged by what Dave Shaw said at the uh, David Shaw, the senior vice president of the UFC, said uh, over the weekend. All right, let's put a bow on this thing. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you. As I mentioned, if you want to check out my interviews this week, they will be on UFC, sorry, tsn.ca slash UFC. For all of my work, you can go to Aaron.report, www.aaron.report. It uh, will bring you to all of the links for my social media, for where my articles are found, etc. And also, I think uh, voting is still open for the World MMA Awards. I would really appreciate it if you're listening to this. If you've gotten this far in the show, I appreciate you for supporting my career already. But if you could vote for me for the uh, World MMA Awards, I would be eternally grateful to you. And while I'm asking for favors... If you can go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and uh, rate and review the show, give us a nice review, I would really appreciate that as well. So thank you so much for uh, all of that and for your patronage listening to the show. 
appreciate you all so much. Uh, really means a lot to me that uh, you tune in week in and week out. And to those uh, listening on TSN Radio in Toronto and Ottawa, thank you as well. Appreciate you. All right. So my parting message to you, be well, be kind, be enthusiastic, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.